Have you heard about the pastor who had a dream that he was preaching a sermon and he woke up and he was? I hope that doesn't happen to me today. But thank you all for praying. Those of you who prayed for us as we uh, headed up to Detroit this weekend and just got back early this morning. Um, we have come to the threshold of the most difficult passage in 2 Corinthians and some people say in one of the most in the whole New Testament. But I didn't want to get started today and then take four weeks off and come back and, um, and resume and have everybody not remember what we talked about the first time. So um, I'm not going to preach on 2 Corinthians today. I'm going to preach on um, James 2. Read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, our passage for the morning. And the sermon name is Partiality. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my bro beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So, partiality. Partiality just refers to favoring one side or one group above the other. The synonyms of partiality are bigotry, prejudice, favoritism, bias. In the Bible, partiality, the, the principle of partiality, the law of partiality is really based in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, judicial law, the law about the, the civil law of the nation of Israel. And, you know, even though we believe that the civil law has uh, expired, we also believe that there, the principles of general equity that are in the civil law of the Old Testament do indeed uh, continue and give us guidance. And this is one of those principles of equity in the Old Testament civil law. For instance, in Leviticus 19.15, 
You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Deuteronomy 1.17 You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And finally, in Deuteronomy 10.17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. So there are many different forms of partiality. It's really an umbrella that includes many things that even which we commonly talk about in our society today. Things like racism and sexism and classism and parochialism and nepotism and ageism and nationalism. Any kind of discrimination based on human characteristic or circumstance. Now, the specific form of partiality that James is dealing with in James chapter 2 is classism, favoring one class above another. And in particular, in James, it's favoring the rich over the poor, which is the most common form of classism, of course. And it's one that even recognized in the book of Proverbs numerous times. For instance, Proverbs 14.20. The poor is disliked by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. And that very spirit is exactly what James is talking about in James chapter 2. Now partiality is a natural part of sinful human nature. We show preference toward people like us. My group, my people, my country, my school, my family, my kind. But God doesn't like partiality. Now partiality is actually a major theme in the New Testament. Because of the controversy that exists, that came, that rose when the whole question of the Gentiles being included in the church uh, came and, and the apostles began to, uh, to deal with that issue. And that's it. so it gets really a, quite a lot of attention in the New Testament. We're going to talk about some of that this morning. For instance, the first time it really takes prominence is in the story of Peter's dream. And is called to go to Cornelius' house, remember? He's ha- he has this dream of a sheet full of unclean animals. And it, it, it lo- comes down from heaven. And there's a voice that says, Peter, take and eat. And every time Peter says, no way, I don't eat this kind of stuff. This is unclean. But then the voice says, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happens three times. Finally, you know, Peter, uh, it's, 
it's uh, been impressed sufficiently upon his mind and then someone comes and you know Peter is told to go to the house of Cornelius where a bunch of Gentiles have gathered and that he should preach the gospel there and when Peter goes to Cornelius' house to preach the gospel these are the words he says he says in Acts 10 you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So, that's the story of how Peter became convinced of the evil of partiality. But not everyone accepted this idea so readily. As the story goes on, Peter goes to visit Antioch. That's the next part of the story that I'd like to tell you. And this is the way it happens. The Christians in, are mainly in Jerusalem. And persecution breaks out against them. And many of them have to flee for their lives. But as they flee... They flee proclaiming the gospel. Some of them go all the way up into Syria to a great city. In fact, the second largest city in the world, I think, at this time. Um, maybe third, I can't remember. But a large city of Antioch in Syria. And there they preach the gospel and a bunch of Gentiles are converted when they hear the gospel. And the first Gentile church is formed there in Antioch. Now when the apostles get wind of this, they send Barnabas, one of the, you know, big uh, Christians in Jerusalem, they send him up to, to provide guidance and leadership and to teach them in Antioch. And Barnabas goes up there and begins to provide leadership, but it's overwhelming. And so he recruits the help of newly converted Paul who assists him in the ministry well so they're ministering there in Antioch and the church is growing and one day Peter comes up for a visit from Jerusalem and Peter enjoys sitting with these Gentile believers and supping with them until one day a group of Jewish Christians from, their, from the Jerusalem church show up. Now these guys are from Peter and Barnabas' home church. They know them personally. But these visitors aren't so sure about this idea of Gentile Christians. So they refuse to sit at table with the Gentile believers in Antioch when dinner time comes around. They separate themselves and sit apart from the others. But instead of objecting to this, Peter was afraid that these f f old friends of his would disapprove if he ate with the Gentiles. And so he goes over and joins his Jewish friends from Jerusalem at their separate table. And when he did that, 
Barnabas and the other Jews who were in the church, the few Jews who were in the church at Antioch, they went over with Peter and joined the, the uh, other Jews eating separately. Well, when Paul sees what's happening, Paul rebukes Peter right in front of everyone. And this, is, this story is told in Galatians 2, 11 through 14, by the way. And one of the, two of the things that Paul says about Peter and what his actions meant in that situation, first of all, he says, Peter stood condemned. And then he says, their conduct, that is Peter, Barnabas, and the other Jews who went to sit with the, with the Jews, Jewish visitors from Jerusalem, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, how is sitting apart from these others, sitting with your own friends, a violation of the gospel? This is very important for us to understand. You see, the gospel says that salvation is by grace. That God doesn't save you because of who you are. God doesn't save you because you're a Jew. God doesn't favor you because you're rich. Or because you're smart. Or because you're white. Or because you're good looking. Or because you're popular. And by refusing fellowship with these fellow believers in Christ, just because they were Gentiles, these Jews were denying, including Peter and Barnabas here, they were denying the principle of grace. And that's why Paul called them out. You see, partiality is a violation of the gospel. Because it implies that God's favor is given on the basis of human distinctions. We're not told, but we have to assume from what we do know about this story that Peter repented. It just, the whole story wouldn't make sense if Peter hadn't repented. It just went without saying that Peter repented. Peter, remember, was good at sinning. But he was also good at repenting. And he was both here, apparently, again. We would have been told if Peter didn't repent, it seems to me. But there's one more important detail that I've left out of this story that has to do with our passage in James. When Peter tells the story of what happens, it happened in Antioch, he says that these visitors who came down from Jerusalem quote, came from James. That's Galatians 2.12. Now why does he say that these men came from James? Well, let's talk about James. You know that there was an apostle named James, brother of John, but that's not who this James is. That apostle was already dead. He had been martyred earlier in the story. That's not this James. This James, apparently, is the brother of Jesus. Who at first, you know, while Jesus was alive, was one of the unbelieving brothers of Jesus. But 
Now he has not only converted and become a believer in his brother Christ, but has become a pillar in the church at Jerusalem. We're told that in Galatians 1.9. But why would Paul specifically say that these men who came from Jerusalem to visit the church in Antioch came from James? Well, it seems that of all the leaders in the church at Jerusalem, James was the slowest to buy into the idea of the Gentiles being included in the church. He was the most reticent, the most difficult to convince, and therefore he became the one that others who had trouble with this rallied around. Like Peter, it took a lot for James to see that partiality was indeed a violation of the gospel. You can see this, I believe, from what happens at the Council of Jerusalem, where we go next. So, let's talk about the Council of Jerusalem. And this is the last part of the story. I know that we're going, you know, following a track that's leading us all over the place. But we get back to James. And now we've gotten back to the man, James. So you can begin to see where we're headed here. So, this issue of whether the Gentiles should be included in the church, and that's a little bit of an oversimplification. You know, they wanted the Gentiles to become Jews first before they're included in the church. It's not that they said, if you've ever been a Gentile, you can never be excluded. But they had to become Jews first. But still, the point is, Gentiles couldn't be members of the church. They had to be Jews to be members of the church. Well, this issue became so controversial that finally they called a council to deal with it. It's the first church council, the only one in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 15, we call it the Council of Jerusalem. When all the leaders, the apostles and the leaders of the church, they gathered together in Jerusalem, they tried to work out this question. There was much debate. The story of this council is told in Acts 15. There was much debate. And then we're told that Peter stood up. And he reminded them of the story of his dream. And how he was led to preach the gospel to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. And how the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Just as he did upon the Jews at Pentecost. And he implored them on the basis of these things to accept the Gentiles as full participants in the church and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then after Peter was done, Paul and Barnabas stood up. And they began to tell stories of how God had worked among the Gentiles in their missionary ventures into the Gentile world. And how he had done signs and wonders just proving that that it was indeed his work among them, as many of them were brought to faith in Christ. Well, it seems that hearing all this, finally James becomes convinced. Because the last thing that happens in the council is that James stands up and says that in his judgment, 
Those of the Gentiles who turn to God ought not be troubled, but rather welcomed and instructed. And that's the last word of the uh, council, the, the resolution of the issue. So it seems that, that James was the, the last one to give in. And once he saw it, once it was all put before him and he said, this, is, this must be what God is doing, and he accepted it, then it was accepted in the whole church. Well, now we come back to James 2. This epistle written by the same James, apparently, this man who took so long to see that partiality was not consistent with the gospel, he instructs his readers, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then he goes on. Now it's obvious that he's not dealing with the Jew and Gentile issue in this letter. That is not the issue that's, that's troubling the people he's writing to. It's rather a different kind of partiality. But the point is that, that he is condemning the same kind of thing that he himself uh, took a long time to come to see the evil of. And uh, so, it, so when we read this verse, to me, it comes with special weight when we know the story behind the man, how the, the man who wrote this came to be able to say this to God's people. And there's much that we can uh, glean from it. Sadly, um, white Christianity in America, we have a history of partiality to outlive. And uh, it has been such a blessing to see God at work in the PCA um, in the last 15 years or so. And uh, how, you know, it really in an extraordinary way, he's raised up um, young African-American men who become reformed and really have nowhere else to go. And it's like they've come into the PCA and they don't, they haven't burst the door down. They just loved the PCA and, and you know, were winsome and, and gentle and patient. And it's been a beautiful thing to see some of the old um, resistance melt away. And uh, some of these people, you know, we're actually close to. We've had Kevin Smith preacher several times and, and speak at a retreat once. Uh, y. Plummer, who's the, the head of um, African-American ministry and raising up African-American leaders to become pastors in churches in the PCA, he was converted under the evangelism of an elder in our church many, many years ago, Paul So. And so it's been uh, very exciting to see the, the, and then the repentance that has come forth in, over the last few years uh, where 
uh, people have realized that that in our past, and and we don't, I don't mean so much as a denomination, because our denomination, you know, just began in 1973, I think it is, and um, but some of the churches in our denomination before the PCA existed um, were were involved in more directly racist things, you know, like excluding blacks from membership in their church and things like that. And, uh, and there's been a beautiful thing to watch that um, be um, repented of and, and uh, reconciliation. It, it's been uh, a great privilege and I'm just so grateful for the the uh, way the Lord has worked. And that's one of the points that I'd like to make is, is just uh, to see the patience of God and the, the way he works in us. You know, Peter wasn't run out of the church because of the mistake he made at Antioch, just like he wasn't run out of the church because he denied Jesus three times after he promised he wouldn't. You know, God is magnificently patient and gentle and persistent and yet uncompromising in the way that he works with us and the way he brings us around to his way of thinking. He works to rid us of putting our identity in human distinctions. And it's important that we Learn to not put confidence in the things of the flesh. Remember that Paul is given to us as an example. He had a lot of reasons to put confidence in the fl- er, in the things of his in the his earthly distinctives. He says in Philippians three, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he came to realize that all the things that he held near and dear, the things that he was most proud of, that he, they weren't the things that really were valuable to him. It was knowing Christ that was the thing of value and all the rest in comparison was garbage. And then he also works, God that is, to help us to love all people regardless of their human distinctives. He empowers us to extend ourselves to love people of all kinds. Not just the ones who are like us. You know, we're saved by grace. And Jesus saves us in spite of who we are. Not because of it. That's one of the reasons that in the end, we'll see that he has saved people from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language. As it says in Revelation 7, 9. The Jesus we love and embrace was himself very different from us. Culturally different. 
ethnically different. Different with regard to the language that he spoke. But in his grace, he has welcomed us in spite of those differences. And now he extends, he wants to use us as extensions of his love that we might be able to welcome and love others, even people who are different than us in terms of human distinctives, in terms of culture, in terms of age, in terms of gender, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of nationality, in terms of language. That's how the gospel expresses itself through Christ's people. So we must forsake the sins of prejudice and bigotry and favoritism and bias and partiality in all their forms as they rise up in our hearts. And we must allow the love of Christ to hold sway in us as he loves the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son and he wants to continue loving the world through us. And now let us come to the table of our Lord Jesus. Where every week we remind ourselves of the great demonstration of love that Christ performed at the cross where he allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be spilt in order that our souls might be redeemed and our sins might be paid for. And this is our cause for loving him so much. Because we weren't worthy, but he gave himself for us. And he gave us the treasure of his inheritance, which by his perfect obedience he achieved. And he earned, and yet he's made it ours because we come to know him. And by knowing him, we become united with him. And united with him, just like a husband and a wife, when they get married. And now everything that belongs to one also belongs to the other. And so when we're united with Christ, everything that is his becomes ours as well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see the power and the beauty of these things. To be melted in our human frailty, in our human twistedness, in our human corruption. To be melted, Lord, by your love and to be molded anew into the image of Christ that we might love as he loved. Oh Lord, forgive us for our sins for we are quick to love ourselves and slow to love the people that you put around us, the people in this world. Now, oh Lord, we come to Jesus in this sacrament and in our hearts and we cry out, Lord, for you to do a work in us that will enable us to be your instruments of love in this world. Be with us as we partake 
that we might open our mouths and our hearts at the same time to all that you have provided for us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.